Father God, Lord, we love you, Lord, and we praise you, Father, and we thank you. We thank you for the uh, the, the opportunity to get to come and just and just be before you today, Father, and learn about you and grow in your word. Father, I pray that as, a, as our pastor, Brother Shan, leads us today, Father, I pray that we would take those words and apply it to our lives, Father, and that we would go out and make disciples of all nations, Lord. And again, I just thank you for each and every person here, Lord. You brought each and every person here for a purpose and for a reason. I pray that you would again speak to our hearts today, Father. Um, we just thank you for our worship service, Lord. Please speak through Shan, Father, again, and help it to be your words, Lord, and not his own. In your name I pray. Amen. Amen. If you would, grab your Bibles as you grab your seat and open with me to Mark chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 14 through 20. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 20. While you're turning there, I want to see if you recognize this fellow. His name is Charles Lindbergh. And he became a celebrity for flying that airplane, the Spirit of St. Louis, from New York to Paris, which was the first time that flight ever happened. It was the first time that a transcontinental flight happened with a solo pilot. It took him 33 hours of, 33 and a half hours, I think, of flying by himself to accomplish this. When he successfully landed in Paris, he became an international celebrity. And he also earned, uh, I guess, some clout in the United States. He became a, an advisor to the military. And interestingly, in 1939, when World War II began, he encouraged the United States not to become involved in the war, that he was an isolationist. He, he kind of said, we need to just take care of ourselves and let them fight over there. It's not our problem. And in fact, he publicly opposed the war for two, three years, 1939, 1940, most of 1941, he kept saying and giving speeches and, and encouraging people not to get involved. And then by the end of 1941, Lindbergh completely changed his opinion, so much so that he actually joined the war effort and he ended up flying 50 missions in the Pacific Theater. So what happened? Why did Lindbergh do a complete turnaround, a complete change well, in, on December 7th, 1941, the Empire of Japan attacked the United States at Pearl Harbor. And then just a few days later, on the 11th, the nation of Germany declared war against the United States. And Lindbergh came to the conclusion that a coming kingdom is an unavoidable reality. What I mean by that is, is it's one thing to ignore a war that's happening on the other side of the world. But when a kingdom, a nation, is coming to you, this is not something you can ignore. It's not something you can avoid. That's not one of the options. Really, your three options are to fight, to surrender, to be conquered. And Lindbergh came to that opinion, that position. Well, as we look at Jesus's very first message, the first sermon that he preaches that is recorded in the gospel of Mark, essentially what he is saying is the kingdom of God is coming. And it is an unavoidable reality that each of us have the same options that Lindbergh had, which is we could fight against the kingdom of God, or we could surrender to the kingdom of God, but we might also be conquered by God's kingdom. And so as we dive into our text this morning, this is what Jesus wants us to recognize and realize. An 
coming kingdom is an unavoidable reality. In last week's text, we learned that John the Baptist, that the purpose of his ministry was to prepare people to receive Christ's Messiah, uh, God's, to receive the Messiah, God's Christ, the sent Savior, the one who was sent to rescue us. And John, he, he focused his ministry around repentance. In other words, he was telling people, in order to be ready to receive the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, you need to be able to recognize the seriousness of your sin. And then here, as we look at verse 14, John is arrested. This is the end of his ministry, which means it is the time of preparation is over, and it is time for Jesus to begin his ministry. So look with me now at verses 14 and 15. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. Now, John, will later learn, was arrested because he was preaching against King Herod. But that's not super important for right now. What's important is that if John's ministry is over and his ministry was one of preparation, then that is a clear indicator to Jesus that it is time for his ministry to fully begin. And he begins to proclaim the gospel of God. You'll remember from last week that gospel means good news, but it's not a vague or indistinct good news. It is a good news that often declared, hey, there's a new king over our nation. Or, hey, there was a great military victory. Gospel, good news. You need to know this. It's going to change how we live our lives. And this is what Jesus is proclaiming. So here's the message, verse 15, saying, The kingdom Excuse me. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Therefore, repent and believe in the gospel. So the time is fulfilled means that, I mean, very literally, it means the time filled up. Well, what does that mean? You can kind of picture like an hourglass, where the sand is falling from the top container to the bottom container. And you know the time has come when the bottom container is full. That's what Jesus is saying. The time has come. It is finally time. Well, what time? Well, God had been preaching and preparing the people now for thousands of years to receive the Savior, the Christ, the Messiah. And Jesus has the audacity to preach his first message and say, guess what? Here I am. We've been waiting for thousands of years and I am here. The time has come. The time for the kingdom of God to be at hand. What does that mean? Very literally, at hand means close. It has come near. It's so close you can reach out and touch it. That's what it means for something to be at hand. You could reach out and touch it. That, and so Jesus says, the kingdom of God has come because I have come. You can reach out and touch the kingdom of God because you could reach out and touch me. So what do we do about this, Jesus? He tells us we should repent and believe in the gospel. Now, before we unpack exactly what that means, first let's take a minute just to understand exactly what the kingdom of God is. Because this is a phrase that we could misunderstand pretty easily, especially because in the New Testament, the kingdom of God is often used synonymously with the phrase, the kingdom of heaven. And if we're not careful, we could think that that means that uh, the Bible is describing what heaven is like. But that doesn't make a lot of sense because Jesus gives us a lot of teachings about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. And if we try to take those teachings and apply them specifically to heaven or only to heaven, then it doesn't make any sense. 
Jesus tells us, well, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, the smallest of the seeds, but then when it's planted, it grows and surprisingly becomes the largest of the garden plants. Well, in what way does that describe heaven, Jesus? Well, it doesn't. That's not what Jesus is talking about because that's not what the kingdom of God is. Instead, the kingdom of God is just like any other kingdom. Now, you might have a king or you might have a person who claims to be a king. He's got the crown and he looks very royal and and proper. And he says, well, I'm the king. Well, how do I know that you are a proper king? Well, in order to be a proper king, he needs to have three things. He needs to have power. He can claim to be a king, but if he doesn't have any authority, he is not a king. He needs to have a people that he subjugates under his power, people who submit to his power. And he needs to have a place. If he doesn't have a place, then there is no kingdom. And so a kingdom, a rightful kingdom, has those three things. A king with power, a king with a place, and a king with a people. And if that is true of a normal, ordinary kingdom, this is also true of God's kingdom, and it helps us to understand what we're talking about here. We're not describing just heaven. Instead, we're describing a much bigger concept when we talk about the kingdom of God. We're talking and learning about the king's power. And this is what we see, Jesus speaking with power and authority. The time has come, the kingdom of God is here. He's speaking and preaching with power and authority. And then we're talking about a place. And that place is not heaven. Instead, that place is wherever the king exercises his power over his people. When Jesus said the kingdom of God is at hand, he wasn't saying the kingdom that is possible for one day for you to go to the kingdom of God. He's saying, no, it's here right now in this place because the king is here right now in this place. And if you would repent and believe, submit to my power, then you would be my people and this would be the kingdom of God right here, right now. You can reach out and touch it. And so, this is the picture of what it means when we, when we imagine God's kingdom. It has to be all three of these things to be a proper kingdom. And this definition is going to be very helpful for us as we study throughout the book of Mark. That whenever Jesus gives a teaching about the kingdom of God, he's teaching us about at least one of these three things. And so let's go back to the parable of the mustard seed. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. The smallest of the seeds, but when it grows, it becomes the largest of the garden plants. He's not describing heaven. Instead, he's describing how the kingdom of God surprisingly grows. It begins with a humble beginning. A birth in a manger. A Jewish peasant. From Nazareth, of all places. And yet... When God's power is at work, it grows and it becomes something that we never could have imagined that it would become. And so this, is, this definition is going to help us to understand Jesus' teachings about the kingdom of God. He's teaching us about either the king's power, the king's place, or the king's people. And specifically in this passage, he is teaching us about how we become one of his people about how we enter into the kingdom of God and where God's kingdom is. All of these things. And what does he tell us? Where is God's kingdom? It's right here where I am. Because he is the king and he is taking back the place that he rightfully owns. 
God is the creator of all things. But then because of our sin, we sent the world into this spiral of destruction and decay. Because of Satan's rebellion, he has claimed now to be the prince over this realm. That's what we read in Ephesians 2. That people who live in their sin, they live under the power of the prince of this age, which is Satan. But Jesus, in bringing the kingdom, was saying, I am reclaiming the place that is rightfully mine. I am shining light in the darkness. I am taking back this corner of the universe for not my name and for my honor and for my glory. And so if you want to see the kingdom of God, here it is. I'm the king. Reach out and touch it. And then he's telling us how we become one of his people. We repent and believe, which is another way of saying we submit to his power. And so very simply, what Jesus is helping us to understand about the kingdom of God is this. To enter God's kingdom, you must repent and believe. To enter God's kingdom, you must repent and believe. Now, these are very churchy words, but very simply, it means this. To submit to the king's power. The word repentance, if you look it up in the original language and the very technical definition, is a change of mind and a change of heart that results in a changed life, a changed action. That because I believe differently, because I see and understand differently, I now live differently. And so these ideas of repentance and belief are always tied together in the gospel. Because it is a kind of belief that changes how you live your life. Now this is something we have to see and we have to understand. Because just like Lindbergh came to understand, a coming kingdom is an unavoidable reality. Now if we were just talking about the kingdom of God as a a faraway spiritual place that you might end up one day, that might be something that you could ignore. Something you could avoid for a time. But that's not what Jesus is describing. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about a kingdom that is coming to your front door. This is an unavoidable reality. This is not something that you can forget about. You really have three options. You could fight against it. I'm going to live my life how I want to live it. Or even try to defend yourself. Well, my sin was really not that big of a deal, God. You could try that. But the result would be that you would be conquered. The Bible tells us that at the end of this life, it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. At the end of this life, if you have not submitted to the king's power, then you will be conquered by the king's power. You'll face the just punishment for sin. But this is not what God wants. Instead, he would wants you to surrender to his power through repentance and belief so that you could become a part of his kingdom. Now, normally when we talk about a coming kingdom, it seems like a threat. It seems like a danger. Well, of course I'm going to stand up and fight against Japan after they've attacked us. Of course I'm going to fight against the Nazis. But that's not the kind of kingdom we're talking about here. This is a kingdom that you want to be a part of. This is not a kingdom that's coming to conquer you. This is a kingdom that is coming to liberate you. This is not a kingdom that has declared war on you. This is a kingdom that has declared war on your greatest enemy, on the prince of this age. 
on the prince of darkness, on your sin, on death. That is who Jesus has declared war against, not against you. So this is a kingdom not that you want to fight against. This is a kingdom that you want to be a part of. And so the kingdom has come and is still coming. God is expanding his borders. Every day he is reclaiming one more corner of his creation that is rightfully his. And we know that when Christ returns in glory and in power, at that point there will be only one kingdom. And so we can amazingly join him. We can enter into his kingdom, but we must repent and believe. So what, what exactly does that look like? I mean, because this sounds like kind of a very abstract concept. Repent and believe. What would it mean for me to repent and believe? Well, I'm so glad you asked, because we have a perfect example of what it means to repent and believe if we look at verses 16 through 20. So if you would, look there with me. So he, he declares this message. Kingdom in his hand. Repent and believe. And then passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon, which elsewhere in the Bible he's called Peter, Simon Peter. That was actually a nickname that Jesus gave to him, which meant rock. And it's not like he's calling him the rock like Dwayne Johnson. It's more like hard-headed. So it's not exactly a compliment. But So he saw Simon, Simon Peter, and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. Now, at first glance, this seems kind of strange. It almost seems like he's hypnotized them or like it's a Jedi mind trick. But we learned last week that, or we can see in Acts chapter 1 verse 22, that these disciples were there at Jesus' baptism. In other words, they saw the Holy Spirit descend visibly and anoint Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah. They heard God speaking from the heavens, This is my Son with whom I am well pleased. So that makes a lot more sense why when Jesus would call them, they would drop what they're doing and follow Him. But it's kind of interesting because us missing that fuller picture, we ask this question, Well, why would they follow Jesus? And that's the wrong question that Mark wants us to ask. Instead of asking, why would they follow Jesus, Mark wants us to ask, well, why did Jesus call to them? Because we're missing out on exactly what it means to be a disciple of a rabbi. Now, rabbi, sometimes we translate that to teacher. Disciple, sometimes we translate that to student. But that's not really capturing the picture of the relationship between a rabbi and a disciple. That this phrase, follow me, was a formal invitation from a rabbi to a disciple. That you could not follow him until he offered that formal invitation. And the way that a disciple normally received that invitation was this. They went through a very long schooling process. Being a disciple is like being in your doctorate program. It's the highest level of schooling. And not just anyone gets there. It's only if you can excel in every level of school will they allow you to continue to pursue along this path. And most people, somewhere along that way, they flunk out. They fell out. Sorry, you're not good enough. You don't get to keep going through this process. 
And so what what would happen is once you finally got to that level that you're ready to be a disciple, you would then go to rabbis and you would petition them, here are all my qualifications, please let me be your disciple. And if the rabbi was sufficiently impressed with their qualifications and how well they had excelled through the schooling process, then he would say to them a formal invitation, follow me. And they would receive it, and that would create this this very strong relational bond between the rabbi and the disciple. So what's so interesting about who Jesus calls to be his disciples? What are they? They're fishermen. Now, that's not a bad job. It's not like a bad thing to be a fisherman. Good middle-class job in this day. They're making decent wages. They're providing for their family. We actually have indications in the text that Simon Peter is actually the owner of the business here. So he's doing pretty good. But he's not qualified to be a disciple. It's none of these men, if they're fishermen, made it through the process. None of them achieved the level of education that they needed to in order to be a disciple. And so what we see is that Jesus calls people who are completely undeserving and unqualified to follow him. Thank God. That's good news for me. Because I am completely unqualified and undeserving of following Jesus. And that's exactly who he calls. Because that's all of us. He looks at us. And instead of us coming to him, well, Jesus, here are all the reasons why you want me. Because I'm so qualified. No, we're not even seeking after him like a disciple should. Instead, he comes to us. He goes after the lost sheep. He finds us and says, no, no, no. You come and follow me. Praise God. And so Jesus, he calls to them and he tells them, if you're going to follow me, you need to understand this is going to be a transformation of who you are. You are right now a fisher of fish and you will become a fisher of men. You're going to have to leave behind this occupation in order to faithfully follow me. The next two disciples have a a similar sacrifice that they're going to have to make. Verse 19 through 20, and going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boats mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father, Zebedee, in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Can you imagine Zebedee in that moment? I guess I'm going to have to be mending some nets, kind of leaving me here in a tight spot. But the king called them, and so they followed. And so, in this picture of these four disciples, we ask this question, what does it look like if someone were to repent and believe? And what we see here is this, to enter God's kingdom, you must follow the king. To enter God's kingdom, you must follow the king. And this is just putting flesh and bones on what it means to repent and believe. This is taking an abstract concept and making it very concrete. Because this is just taking one truth and saying it in two different ways. When you repent and believe, that is how you follow the king. This is why I love studying the Gospels. Because for the disciples, it was very clear how they were to follow Jesus. But for us, it seems like such an abstract 
concept. Are you a Christian? Well, yeah. You follow Jesus? Yeah. Okay. Can you imagine the disciples here in this moment? They're sitting there working with the nets, and Jesus says, come, follow me. And they say, yes, Jesus, we're following you. And they went back to mending the nets. Jesus says, no, 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 we're going this way. Come follow me. Yeah, Jesus, we're following you. And they throw the nets back out for one more cast. Jesus says, no, guys, really, come and follow me. They say, yeah, we're, we're following you, Jesus, as they continue to be fishermen. It'd be ridiculous. They go, no, you're, of course you're not following Jesus. You're still fishermen. But I wonder how many of us say, yeah, I'm a Christian. Yeah, I follow Jesus. We're still mending our nets. We're still throwing out the cast. And what we see here is that if we're going to follow Jesus, it's going to require that we live differently. But this is not so strange. This is not so illogical. Because when you believe things sincerely, you naturally live your life differently. The things that you believe, you act on. I'll give you a great example here. You guys know what the Darwin Awards are? This is not an award you want to win. It's whenever someone dies in an especially idiotic way, they give that person a Darwin Award, and every year they put out this list of stories of people who caused their deaths in especially idiotic ways. Well, a 2020 Darwin Award winner, his name was Michael Sexton. And he had read this series of poems by an author named Forrest Finn called The Thrill of the Chase. And in this poem, uh, the author described the location of a supposed $2 million treasure that was hidden somewhere in the Rockies. Well, Michael, having read the poems, believed that he had deciphered the message and he knew exactly where this treasure was. Well, what did that belief lead him to do? To go and hunt for the treasure. Because when you believe something, it causes you to live your life differently. Well, it didn't go so well for him. He had, the first time he went searching for the treasure, he had to be rescued. The second time he went, because he still believed it sincerely, the rescuers didn't come in time, and so he was given a Darwin Award. But what we see in this example is that true belief leads to action. If you sincerely believe that you knew the winning lottery numbers... What would you do? You'd buy a lottery ticket. If you sincerely believed that you accidentally parked your car this morning in a landmine field, what would you do? You might get a ride home, or you'd at least be very careful as you went back to your car. If you sincerely believed that you were going to run into your idol, your hero, tomorrow at lunchtime, would you dress a little bit differently as you got ready tomorrow morning? Because when we have sincere beliefs, they always lead to action. And so it is ridiculous for us to say we believe in Jesus and then to do nothing about it. We're like fishermen who continue to fish. I mean, if you believed that the perfect Son of God died to take the eternal punishment for your sin, how could that belief not lead to repentance? If you believed that the king of the universe was calling you into a personal relationship with him, what wouldn't you be willing to walk away from? Certainly, we'd be willing to walk away from our our nets, our careers. And there are many people, in order to follow Jesus more faithfully, have to walk away from a career. 
Certainly, you'd even be willing to walk away from family. There are many people, many missionaries, who go to the other side of the world who live very, very far from family because they know that is what they are called to do in order to faithfully follow Jesus. And I think we look at these fishermen here as an example and we go, okay, yeah, I'm going to follow Jesus, but probably Jesus won't call me to do those things, right? And maybe that's the wrong assumption to make. Maybe there are people in the room today who are supposed to be on the other side of the world right now sharing the gospel. And God has called them in that way, but they continue to work at their nets. Maybe God won't call you in such extreme ways to follow Jesus, but what is certain is that he will call you to sacrifice many things in order to follow Jesus. If you're going to follow Jesus, you have to be willing to become a fisher of men. And I don't just mean that mean I don't just say that to mean you have to be willing to share the gospel. You do. But realize becoming a fisher of men for Peter meant a transformation of the core of who he was. The focus and the intention of his entire life had to change in order to follow Jesus. And are we willing to make those kinds of sacrifices? Are we willing to go out into our community? We advertised this morning prayer and share. It can be intimidating. It can be scary. Are you willing to have an uncomfortable conversation so that you can follow Jesus? Well, if you believe that the king of the universe is calling you personally to follow him, then yes, of course, we're willing to make those sacrifices. If you believed that the kingdom of God is at hand, wouldn't you want to help build that kingdom? Well, church, it is. The kingdom of God is at hand. We're not talking about a faraway place. We're talking about a present reality. You can reach out and touch it. I mean, let's just think about our definition. Are we his people? Are we the king's people? Are we the king's people? Are we living in submission to his power? Maybe not perfectly. (laughs) It's not a trick question. Are we living in submission to his power? Yes. That means this is his place. Not because church is on the outside of the building but because this is one more corner of his world that we have reclaimed from the prince of darkness. This is one more corner of the world where the light of God is shining, where truth is being proclaimed, where God is being honored and worshipped in the way that he deserves. And so this is the kingdom of God. Reach out and touch it. But this also means that your home can be the kingdom of God, a kingdom outpost where you raise your family to follow God's word instead of the prince of this world. This means that your job, your CrossFit class, can be kingdom outposts, one more place where his people live in submission to his power 
and where the light of God shines in the darkness. It is at hand, church. Reach out and touch it. I want us to conclude by remembering this. Because I would imagine there are some people here who maybe this Jesus stuff is all new for you. Or maybe you've been going to church your whole life, but you're thinking to yourself, I don't know if I've ever actually submitted to his power. I don't know if I really am one of his people. Well, let me remind you that a coming kingdom is an unavoidable reality. Don't fight against his kingdom. Submit to his power and become one of his people. He's calling you into his kingdom, not because you deserve it, not because you earned it, not because of your credentials, but because of his love and his mercy and because his desire to see you saved from the darkness. Will you submit to his power? Will you repent and believe? As we have this time of response, I'm going to be down here in the front. I would love to talk with anybody who wants to understand that decision more clearly. I'll show you from the Word of God how you can follow the King today. Father, we're so thankful for your perfect and holy Word. We're so thankful for how you have called us to follow you, even though we don't deserve it. We're so thankful for you shining light into the darkness and reclaiming the world that is properly yours. We're so thankful that we have the opportunity to partner with you in the building and the growing of your kingdom. God, we ask in this time of response that you would give everyone in the room the courage that they need to be obedient to your call. We ask that you would help us to submit more fully to your power. We ask, Lord, that you would add one more person to your kingdom today. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, we sang in our third song this morning that the heavens are roaring. Now, that's a, that's a reference straight from Revelation. When John saw the throne of heaven and he saw nations all gathered around the throne and he described the sound as a roar of many waters. Because as the people worshipped God, it became a roar. So as we join our voices together, we join with the many who are already around the throne. We add to the roar of heaven. But here today and you have not submitted to the power of the king, if you are not following Jesus, the roar of heaven could always be one voice louder. God deserves that honor and that praise and that glory.